Welcome to the Sports Marketing Huddle, a podcast that looks at all things marketing in the world of sports. I'm your host, Rob Cressy, founder of Bacon Sports. And joining me today is Bob Melandro, managing partner at White Cap Sports. Bob, super excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Rob. Looking forward to it. Can you give a quick overview on who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, you know, by nature, I'm out of school. I was, uh, you know, worked on Wall Street as a financial advisor for a number of years, and then uh, my career took a little bit of a left turn into uh, sports marketing. Got involved with a firm in New York City that um, had partnerships with major league sports teams, and enabled me to learn a lot about team operations and revenue generating activities. And uh, I found, you know, that industry to be very exciting and uh, did that for a few years and then ultimately uh, moved into sports mergers and acquisitions and have been doing that ever since, I would say for about 11 years now. So we are, you know, to boil it down, we are in the, we are in the business of putting investors into sports related opportunities and that primarily means, you know, in the team sports space. So uh, we re represent buyers and sellers who are acquiring baseball teams, hockey teams, soccer teams, football teams, and even you know opportunities outside the traditional space and things like esports, uh, rugby, golf. So we really run the gamut. Uh, well, actually, now that you mentioned esports, that's sort of interesting to me. Can you give me a little insight into what it would be like to invest or be a part of an esports organization? Because there's so many people who want to be a part of esports, whether it's on the brand side or even investors, but don't know a ton about the industry, but as I look from the outside, you see the amount of attention that is in esports, and you're like, man, if I could only be a part of this. So take me sort of into that mindset and sort of how those work. Yeah, believe it or not, they work very similar to the traditional sports space. Um, the big difference, and you kind of alluded to it, is that, you know, esports is still fairly new, and, um, you know, a lot of people don't have a real good handle on it from an investment standpoint. However, um, it is getting a lot of attention, as you mentioned, and some really smart people with, uh, you know, substantial sports pedigrees are putting a lot of money into the space. So that leap of faith, so to speak, is what is enabling other people who, who maybe have less capital to invest, um, giving them a little bit of comfort uh, that they're, you know, getting involved in something that has significant upside. But, you know, to answer your question more directly, like other traditional sports, esports has a, you know several league structures, and within those leagues, there are teams, and those teams are typically privately owned. And just like a major league team can have a single entity that has footed the bill for the entire um, investment, or they could bring in investment partners, which is actually a more common scenario. So people can get involved in some of those team situations um, where there's opportunity to bring on limited partners or minority investors. Um, and in some cases, there's already teams that are, you know, kind of looking to trade uh, privately, um, you know, for the full amount. So there are people who got involved in the space, have put in 20, 30, 40 million dollars, and at this point are kind of weighing options and whether or not it makes sense to, to try to take some of that money off the table. Is there any element of this that is shiny object syndrome? So someone who may be an investor who may also be uninformed, but who also says, you know what? I see esports and the growth of this. This is something that I want to be involved, uh, involved in without them really understanding uh, the full landscape 
of it all and how does that sort of tie into the valuation that someone like them may pay especially if they're going to be purchasing or building a new team yeah i think that's a really good point i think the shiny object aspect of it is related to the people who have invested so when you hear about you know bob Kraft investing in esports or kobe bryant or alex rodriguez and you know these guys typically don't make a lot of bad bets um, when they when they invest, they're usually very fully vetting any opportunities they get involved in. Um, so I think that is part of the cachet here. Um, but um, that being said, I think the the upside, or I think what people get really excited about, are the demographic statistics. I think people understand that businesses that target you know certain age groups, whether you want to call them millennials or certain people who are um, you know moving into the esports space that grew up playing these games and who have a high degree of, of attention paid to the, to the space and will spend money in the space. I think that's really what's driving investors and advertisers to esports. Um, it's too new to have a track record. You can't look at esports like you look at baseball and say, well, here's a, a sequence of team transactions that have occurred over the years, and here's how we line up the financials to, to evaluate whether they were good deals or bad deals. Esports is all, everyone's betting on the future of esports. It's very much, obviously it's on the come as an industry, um, and that's what appeals to investors. It's the newness, it's the upside, it's the people who have already uh, made investments into the space, and it's the demographics um, that are linked to the growth of the sport. You've got a background in sports marketing. So let's talk about the marketing around esports then, because one thing that I've experienced is that Brands are interested in being a part of it, but unfortunately there's rarely a champion internally for the brands who's like, hey, welcome to our 12-year esports veteran. So they don't exactly know the entry point into it. And then on the flip side, the esports teams, because they're so new, uh, a lot of them are run almost like a startup where they haven't exactly built the relationships with the brand. So there's almost like a giant sea of everybody trying to figure it out. How do we market this so that it can be a win-win situation for everyone? So how do you see the, the marketing around esports from the brands getting involved in this and doing so in a way that makes sense for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's probably no real answer that would, gain a consensus um, across the board because like you said you know there's not a track record here there's it it, it really is a calculated uh, guess or gamble um, from the activation standpoint I, there's just no other way around it there's there's you have to you have to take certain properties of these assets and look at the way they line up look at who they appeal to and if you're an advertiser does it reach your target market and even if it hasn't done it traditionally and there's not a lot of data on, our, on ROI, um, you have to feel that if it checks enough boxes and lines up um, you know, objectively, that you're gonna, willing, you're gonna be willing to take that risk. Um, and that's kind of where it's been. Um, but you know, there are other sports that have been new in the past or who have you know, had ascending growth that advertisers have bet on and have done very well with. So this, you know, in all likelihood, we'll, we'll um, follow the same trajectory. So branching out past just esports, let's look into the transaction of buying and selling a team. And from your standpoint, what's the big difference when you're on the buy side as opposed to the selling side? That's a really good question. Um, you know, here's the thing. I mean, sellers are easy to find. I mean, they're the ones who own the teams. So 
you know, there's only X amount of sellers out there in the marketplace, depending on how broad you want to go in, in defining what a sport is. Um, but buyers can be anyone, you know, anyone that has the interest and has the capital um, could potentially be a buyer, even if they've not uh, been in the space before. So if I came across a buyer, if I came across somebody that had those resources and said, I'd like to find a baseball team or a hockey team or an esports team, um, they will have choices. They, we will be able to bring them a multitude of opportunities um, that are out there, even if they're not live and formally, uh, quote unquote, for sale. Um, if you knock on enough doors, you will pry opportunities loose. And at the same time, you know, there's the saying in this business and, and a lot of businesses that you know, nothing's for sale, but everything's for sale, which means that at, at a certain price, um, almost any owner would, would consider having a discussion about uh, the sale of their asset. Uh, the sell side is very different. The sell side is you know, simply somebody who has the asset. They're looking to very quietly divest. The buyer doesn't care as much about um, being quiet necessarily. Uh, they may or they may not. A seller almost always wants everything to be done very quietly, um, very purposefully, and uh, not, with, not with a lot of fanfare with the exception of some of these major league deals where ultimately they did go to auction and that they did that because they wanted to drive up the sale price by getting, you know, a competitive bidding process in place. But generally speaking, um, sellers would prefer a non auction environment a negotiated deal um, without a lot of fanfare. What are the perks to buying a team? And even if it's on a minority share, well, the perks are actually very similar to, you know, a majority share with the exception, and this is a big one, of control. So somebody who owns a majority or a controlling stake in a team gets to call the shots. They get to manage the day-to-day -day operation. They have uh, typically um, input over personnel decisions, about over budgets, over marketing. A minority owner may not have any of those things, however, there's still a big appeal there because, you know, even a minority owner could have a board seat. They could have a say in some of these things. If the team wins a championship, that minority owner uh, will very likely get a, get a ring. Um, and not to mention you typically, depending on the structure um, of the arena or the stadium, most minority owners have the same benefits when it comes to being in the owner's suite and, and the perks that go with, um, you know, day to day, um, interaction with the team um, as a majority owner. So, you know, there's, you get pretty much all the perks uh, being an LP or limited partner as you do uh, being a control owner, except you're not involved in the day-to-day -day business or finances. One trend that I'm starting to see a little bit more, and certainly this is with high profile athletes, is athletes owning teams. So LeBron James has already mentioned that he wants to own a team. And we've seen what Magic Johnson has done in building, I guess, his mogul status. And you see Michael Jordan owning a team. And you see Derek Jeter being part of the ownership group for the Marlins there. What do you think about these bigger-than-life athletes becoming owners and the value that they bring in the transaction? Yeah, they, I mean, there's obviously that trend is going to continue um, because they do bring a lot of value. They do bring cachet um, to the asset. And, um, you know, in LeBron's case, he actually does own part of, a, um, of Liverpool overseas. 
And um, everybody's obviously familiar with the Derek Jeter transaction from 2017. So that's going to continue. Another thing that, that, that factors into it is that these teams' valuations are skyrocketing to the point where there's not a lot of people. If you want to be a majority owner of a major league team now, unlike what we talked about at the outset, you really do have to have a tremendous amount of capital, even to get involved at a 5-10% level. And, you know, the athletes and celebrities um, are rapidly joining, you know, the upper echelon of, of wealth in the United States, um, as, as you can see. So, you know, that, that likely will continue um, for the foreseeable future. So, Bob, I know one thing that is a very big skill set for you is business development. And what I want to get us out on is if you can share any business development tips from your journey that have really helped you along the way that might be able to help anybody else who's listening to this right now. Sure. Um, I, I think on the business development side, it's, it, there's, there's a couple things that we always have traditionally focused on. One is connectivity. Um, nobody wants to ever be prospected or sold or coerced into anything. Um, people value relationships. So even in small transactions, you have the ability to build connectivity through a relationship. And that obviously um, could sustain um, you know, for a period of time and, uh, and could become more than a business relationship. And I've enjoyed that, you know, many times, you know, throughout my career. But the other thing when you're developing business is to, as you develop a relationship is understanding your client or your prospect. And I always say there's four reasons people don't move forward on a proposition or a transaction. Um, there's a lot of excuses, but there's really only four reasons and it's no need, no hurry, no trust, no money. And you have to make sure if you're presenting a value proposition and you're looking to build a relationship that you understand which of these things may apply um, to any conversation you're having. And um, the better you understand that, the better you, you understand how to either um, present the opportunity in a more concise way, or sometimes you just have to hit the, the pause button and circle back with that client or prospect at a later date when it's more suitable for them. And, um, you know, that's, and that actually leads me to the third thing, which is suitability. And that's critical um, in any type of investment is you have to always make sure that what you're proposing makes sense um, on a, in a variety of ways, most, mostly economically, but also in the sense of, is it something that, um, you know, fits their portfolio? What we do almost always falls into that alternative asset bucket, and it's always a sliver of somebody's portfolio, ideally. Uh, we would not let or allow anyone to take a nest egg and, and plow it into a, you know, a minor league baseball team. Not that it's not a good investment. It's just you, you don't ever want somebody to be top heavy on a sports related investment because they're, you know, for the most part, illiquid and they also are somewhat unpredictable. So um, that's, that's how we would uh, categorize those. In terms of uh, the close rate of transactions, can you give any insight onto either the buy or sell side into, hey, how often do these deals close or how often do they run into hiccups knowing uh, the size of the deal that we're obviously working with? Um, the key there is the expectations. If, if a seller has unreasonable expectations, the deal either will take a long time to close or it just won't close. If they, if they have unfair expectations and they're not flexible, um, that could be a problem. What we always try our best to do is to, is to get with our client and set the expectations properly as far as what we think fair market value is. 
And if there is a gap between what we feel um, is proper and what the client feels is proper, you know, we might agree to test the market. Ultimately, I tell my clients, let the market decide. The market will tell you what fair market value is. Because especially with sports-related investments, it's very much driven by supply and demand. And there's not, a, there's not a, an enormous number of transactions like, like transactions um, to do any type of um, real heavy analysis on. So it's really going to be worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And that's what I mean by the supply and demand. So, um, so to that point, um, if the expectations are set properly, and we obviously have you know, experience in pretty much every industry we get involved in, um, they will almost always sell. So we don't run into anything that doesn't sell unless the expectations are not reasonable and the client um, is not willing to be flexible um, in conjunction with the market. Uh, actually, one last question in terms of the valuation. Uh, a few months ago, there was talk about what if James Dolan ever sold the Knicks or what would the price for something like that be? And we saw when Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers and I believe it went for over $2 billion, which was even more than people expected there. And we're seeing the rise, especially these NBA franchises where the, the value of them just continues to increase. So how would you even value something like the Knicks, knowing the market, knowing the ability for them to increase their valuation, and especially knowing where the Knicks are right now in terms of success of the franchise or a lack thereof? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of work that backwards. The success of the franchise, although it is, it could be important, it's usually not as important in a major market. So that's why, you know, a team like the Knicks or the Yankees or the Lakers or even the Chicago Cubs, if and when they're ever on the market, um, their, their history or their current performance is going to have very little to do with the valuation. Those valuations might be more impactful in a small to medium-sized market, um, for sure. But in the larger markets, because you have strong local uh, media rights deals and you have strong local support that doesn't waver, so as you can see, the Knicks sell out, whether they win 15 games or, or 50 games, um, that's going to be pretty consistent. As far as putting a valuation on a franchise like that, you know, it's, it's, it's part science and it's part art. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's obviously a financial component um, that's involved um, with the Knicks or with any major league team like that. Um, but, you know, there's also the cachet of, you know, that entity itself, whether they would sell the Knicks or they would put the entire entity on the block, which owns the Knicks, the Rangers, Madison Square Garden, that would impact, obviously, to a large degree, um, you know, what the valuation would be. But if you're looking at the Knicks in a, in a vacuum, you know, kind of in comparison to other NBA teams, um, I would say, you know, clearly they would be at the, at the top of, um, of the valuation chart. No question about it. Bob, I really enjoyed this conversation. Where can people connect with you? Oh, you could find us uh, online. We have a website, whitecapsports.com. Uh, we're also on uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, or you could just uh, you could pick up the phone, give me a call anytime, and uh, happy to answer questions or uh, chat about some of the things we're working on, uh, which uh, normally at any given time, we're working on seven or eight opportunities. Nice. And as always, I would love to hear from you about this episode. If you were to purchase a team in minors or majors, what team would it be? You can hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. At Rob Cressy. That's it. That's all. As always. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Sports Marketing Huddle, the number one thing you can do to support us is tell your friends about it. We believe in organic growth, and if you get value out of the free podcast we deliver, then we'd appreciate if you share on social media. If you're looking for some creative sports marketing resources, you can sign up for my newsletter at robcressy.com. I drop bite-sized nuggets of wisdom to get your juices flowing. 